Oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought. From Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Hi, I'm Kiva Runnels, a first-year student in Arts and Sciences here at WashU. I'm interested in storytelling in all its forms, and I'm kind of obsessed with podcast and audio journalism. I've been working with Hold That Thought as an intern, and for my first Hold That Thought episode, I sat down with Lance Janot. I'm Lance Janot, and I'm a lecturer in the Department of Classics and the program in Religious Studies at Washington University. I first heard about Janot from two of my good friends who took his scriptures and cultural traditions course during this past semester and would not shut up about how much they were learning from Lance Janot. So I went to talk to him, and I found out that he studies many aspects of religious texts in early Christianity. But one sacred text and one character stood out to him as having an important story to tell. Brought to you today by Hold That Thought and Lance Janot, the story of the New Testament and the one and only St. Peter. The figure of Peter really interests me. I was studying the New Testament and early Christian history, and Peter, of course, is known as really the leader of the 12 apostles. Um, and his real importance is because he becomes the foundation of clerical authority for the, the later history of the church, for the bishops, and the entire Christian clergy. The apostles were Jesus's inner circle, his first 12 followers. The idea here is that thousands of years ago, the apostles, including Peter, passed down their authority to other early Christian leaders. Those leaders then passed down their authority to the next generation of leaders, and on and on, until you get to today's bishops and priests. For most uh, church authorities, even today, whether it be Roman Catholic or the Eastern Orthodox churches or the Anglican Communion, is that every bishop can trace his, or in some cases her, authority all the way back to one of the 12 apostles. Scholars call this belief the doctrine of apostolic succession. The doctrine is especially important for Catholics. Why, you ask? Well, because of Peter. To this day, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome is one of the most important Catholic sites in the world. The idea that the church in Rome is sort of the center, the main institution that the Roman Catholic Church, of course, holds on to, is grounded in the idea that um, eventually Peter made his way to Rome and he was basically a founder of the church in Rome. The significance of Peter within Catholicism and Christianity means that if you've read the Bible, taken a course in religious studies, or have been exposed to Catholicism and Christianity, you've probably heard of him. He's kind of a big deal, and not just for Catholics. Generally, Peter's regarded as the leader of the 12 uh, apostles or 12 disciples, mm -hmm. and usually based on that idea, I think the general feeling is that he was um, a leader and really loyal and mm -hmm. almost maybe even a, a role model. But how do we know that Peter was a role model or really anything about him? It turns out that almost everything we know about Peter comes from the New Testament, specifically the Gospels. But here's the thing about the Gospels. There's four of them, and they don't all say the same thing. That's where it gets even more interesting because we have four different Gospels in the New Testament and we know when you, when you read these Gospels individually, you actually see that there's some ambivalence about Peter's character. The four Gospels of the New Testament are attributed to four different writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Three of these Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are referred to as the Synoptic Gospels. They're called synoptics because each of these three authors tells the same story. 
The big difference between the three is the way in which the story of Jesus and his disciples is told. And as we all know, the perspective of a storyteller can make all the difference. In the case of Peter, Mark's gospel is quite a bit different from the rest. It is the gospel of Mark that's important here because uh, if you can read Mark as Mark just on its own terms and not read Mark through the stories as they're told in the other gospels, um, Matthew, Luke, and John, it's really in the gospel of Mark where you see what for a lot of scholars has been a very critical and uh, pessimistic representation of Peter. Critical? Pessimistic? <laughs> These are not words that many associate with the head of the Catholic Church, a literal saint. But in the Gospel of Mark, that's what you get. To understand how Mark's version is so different from the other Gospels, we have to start at the beginning. The whole story starts off very well. Um, Peter shows great enthusiasm when Jesus calls him. Right in the very first chapter of Mark, Peter is called to be a follower of Jesus. But really from there on out in, in Mark's story, um, it all kind of goes downhill, especially for Peter. At the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, Peter is the very first disciple to be called by Jesus. Then he calls the other 11. But just because Jesus called these guys doesn't mean they were always the ideal followers. Throughout Mark's Gospel, Jesus teaches a parable or teaches something to the disciples or he performs a miracle and repeatedly Mark says that the disciples failed to understand what Jesus was teaching and this happens over and over again in Mark. Mark really highlights they didn't understand or their hearts were hardened and so there is already in Mark a really sort of critical representation of Jesus' inner circle. Wow, Mark's pretty brutal on the disciples here it seems and just wait, it gets worse. <laughs> When you get to the middle of Mark's story, there's a famous scene. Uh, it's actually three scenes. Scholars call it the, the triple prediction section. Uh, and that's because it's a, it's a place where Mark is set right in the middle of his gospel. Jesus predicts that he's going to die three times to his disciples. And each time the disciples misunderstand. And Mark there follows this pattern where Jesus predicts his death, the disciples misunderstand, and then it provides an opportunity for Jesus to teach about discipleship. And the message for Mark is that discipleship's really about uh, suffering and not about having glory and power. But each time it says the disciples didn't understand this either. And Peter, who is the supposed leader of the disciples, also didn't understand. In fact, Peter, the person who is supposed to have the most faith in Jesus, not only doesn't believe him, he sort of yells at Jesus for saying he's gonna suffer. For Peter, like for a lot of people, the idea that the Son of God could suffer was really hard to believe. Mark knew that. And it's almost as if Mark is using the character of Peter there to reflect what a lot of people thought in Mark's time, that the Messiah was going to be a powerful miracle worker, or a great king that would drive the Roman Empire out of Judea and restore the, the political kingdom of Israel. But Jesus comes along in Mark's gospel and he says, actually the Messiah is about suffering, not about power. And so Peter even rebukes, Je you know, he rebukes Jesus for this. And again, this is a classic moment in Mark's gospel where it, it shows that the disciples didn't really understand who Jesus was and what he was all about. Okay, so had the gospel of Mark ended here, it might've looked pretty bad for Peter and the boys. But wait, there's still more to the story. From there, it even gets worse. Aw, oh, man. I was hoping for a bit of redemption here. 
No such luck in the Gospel of Mark. After Jesus has traveled around in the rural areas of Judea, they finally go to the city and they're going to keep the Passover meal. And at that Last Supper, uh, which is the Passover meal, Jesus then again predicts. He predicts that he's going to suffer and he actually predicts that all his disciples will abandon him. And Mark sets this whole story up very carefully because at the supper he says that Peter in particular said, even if everybody else abandons you, I won't. But then immediately after dinner, they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And again, Mark, the way he tells the story, really highlights that the disciples failed Jesus. Um, Three times Jesus says, I'm going to go over here by myself to pray, and I want you to remain vigilant and stay awake. And then Jesus keeps coming back to them, and they keep falling asleep. They couldn't stay awake. They couldn't do what Jesus asked them to do. And, of course, Jesus knows what's coming. He knows it. The police are going to come with Judas Iscariot and arrest him, and he keeps telling the disciples to stay awake, but they can't. So then the scene ends with Judas coming with the police, and they betray him, and then the very final line of that scene is, and everybody fled, just as Jesus said they would, they all took off. Um, Which is actually the last time you hear about Jesus' 12 disciples in the Gospel of Mark. The last time you hear about the disciples, The disciples just sort of disappear from the story. That is, except for Peter. So Mark actually brings Peter back for one more episode before the end of the Gospel. And it may be that Mark is even playing with his readers a little bit, that if if you had never read Mark, you might think, okay, well, Peter's the leader of the disciples. Maybe there's going to be some redemption for Peter. Because in the story, Mark says that they arrested Jesus And then Peter, everybody fled, but Peter followed at a little bit of a distance. He was being cautious, and he followed Jesus uh, to where they took him for his trial. But if the reader is thinking at this point that maybe there's going to be some redemption for Peter, Mark ends up undercutting that too. And it turns out, actually, this final episode where Peter's included really goes out of its way to make Peter look even worse than the others, because this is the final and famous story where Peter denies Jesus three times. At this point in the story, Jesus is inside being interrogated. Outside, Peter is waiting in the courtyard. And people approach him and they say, weren't you one of his followers? And three times he denies Jesus. And then the last thing you hear about Peter in the Gospel of Mark is um, he realized what he'd done and he broke down and wept. And there's a little bit of ambivalence there, you know, it's not clear whether whether Mark was saying that Peter repented, but at any rate, he did recognize what he had done and, and he broke down in tears over it. Mark seems quite set on proving that discipleship is about suffering by showing all of Jesus' disciples betraying him, especially Peter. Mark's ending to his gospel, though, is one of the most glaring differences between his story and the versions in Luke and Matthew. So then the gospel ends on a very curious note. Some women disciples go to Jesus' tomb, and they find, of course, as the famous story goes, they find the tomb empty. There's a mysterious young man. Mark doesn't say it's an angel, it's just a mysterious young man in the tomb. And the young man tells the women, go tell Peter and the other male disciples that Jesus is risen. But then the way Mark ends the story is he just says, but the women didn't tell anybody anything and they ran away in fear, and that's it. So really, according to Mark's story, Jesus was risen, but he never met his, he never met Peter, and he never met his 12 disciples. 
after the resurrection. So essentially, they all abandoned him. Peter denied him three times. And then the way Mark tell, ends the story is that the disciples are more or less marginalized. As somebody who's not religious but went to Catholic school, I was actually unaware of Mark's choice to keep the disciples from reuniting with Jesus after the resurrection. In both Matthew and Luke, the story of Jesus ends with a reunion with his disciples and Jesus' famous decree that the apostles must travel the nations and spread his message. So why is the story in Mark so different from the one in Luke and Matthew? One way to read this, of course, is that Mark represents one early Christian view from the first century within the first couple generations of Christianity that had, uh, at the very least, an ambivalent attitude toward the authority of the, the 12 apostles, um, and maybe even more than that, maybe even quite a critical view of them. It's very likely that Mark is written from a Christian viewpoint that, that doesn't take the 12 disciples or, or somebody like Peter seriously. So the Gospel of Mark reflects an early Christian view of the disciples that is, at the very least, unflattering. This means that our modern understanding of the disciples as wise, devoted followers who spread the message of Jesus must come from the other two synoptics, Matthew and Luke. Essentially, the way Matthew and Luke write their Gospels, it's what I like to call a rehabilitation of the 12 disciples. If you go through each of the stories, where Mark says they misunderstood Jesus' teaching or they were hard-hearted. In each case, if you compare the version in Matthew and Luke and you look at the way Matthew and Luke rewrote Mark's story, they always change a little bit. They'll remove the part that said they misunderstood or they'll remove the part that says they were hard-hearted. Instead of misunderstanding, Matthew will say, then they praised Jesus and worshiped him. You know, It really makes them look like disciples who are our good role models who do understand and were faithful to Jesus. This softer, arguably more idealistic view of the disciples shows up most notably in the ways that Matthew and Luke end their Gospels. Instead of Mark's Gospel, where Jesus never meets the disciples after the resurrection, both in Matthew and in Luke, in slightly different ways, but in both of them, Jesus appears to his disciples after the resurrection and transfers his authority to them and then sends them out to uh, be apostles to the nations. So it seems like out of the two competing perspectives, those in Matthew and Luke have won most people over. But when it comes to stories, not only the person telling the story matters, but also the order in which they're presented. Mark seems to be, uh, we, most scholars hold it to be the first gospel which means Matthew and Luke were written later, and it, uh, most scholars believe that Matthew and Luke uh, had a copy of Mark and basically wrote their Gospels as an expansion and in some ways a rewriting of Mark. And what's fascinating is uh, the order of the Gospels now is Matthew, then Mark, then Luke and John. And it's actually as if Mark has been bookended by Matthew and Luke so that, so that Mark is read in terms of Matthew and Luke so that the reader knows that Jesus appeared to his apostles. Had the Gospels been ordered chronologically, with Mark first, we might get a different view of Peter and the other Apostles. Matthew and Luke would look like a rewrite, but the early church didn't want our first impression of the disciples to be so negative. In the history of religions, traditions get read in terms of one another. 
and oftentimes traditions are being read for very concrete, even sort of political reasons, right? In this case, uh, taking the case of Peter and the institution of the Twelve Apostles to legitimate what becomes the institution of the clergy and the bishopric and the doctrine of apostolic succession. So when you have a, a tradition like the one in Mark that could possibly threaten that or call it into question, then that has to be interpreted in terms of some other traditions. Learning how to read each gospel individually can help personalize a religious experience and help us see a diversity of views expressed in a sacred text. Even if the institution of the religion seems to have a singular point of view or interpretation, the original texts might say something different. If you've never thought about these issues or about St. Peter as a controversial figure, you're hardly alone. Janot himself hasn't always understood the ways that the Bible tells different stories. I was raised in a, a very Christian fundamentalist home where there's sort of one story you know, that the Bible represents. And so learning to read the Gospels as individual texts, um, it not only gives me a better idea about the diversity of views among early Christians, and I came to understand that the Gospels don't all tell the same story, right? There are four Gospels, which means in, in some way there's going to at least be four right. different stories. Not necessarily all in a critical way either. It's given me an appreciation for understanding that, that each evangelist uh, has his own message and his own emphasis, um, and it makes the stories about Jesus much more rich when you can really see what it is that each four of the gospel writers is trying to say about Jesus and how they're doing that differently. So it really enriches um, the, uh, the traditions about Jesus for me. huge thank you to Lance Janot for joining Hold That Thought, and to Kiva Runnels for being our very first intern guest producer. For our full archive of episodes, please check us out on Facebook, Twitter, or at holdthatthought.wustl.edu. Thank you for listening. <laughs>